Heavenly Father, it's our desire to hear from you this morning through the Word of God, through your Word. We would like to be able to say yes to you. Thank you, Lord, that you want us. You want us to serve you. You want us to say yes. Would you use your word today to convince the one in the seat out there that's never put their faith in you to do so today? Oh, that they wouldn't leave without knowing you. And then for that one who's been on the sideline for far too long, would you let your word talk to their hearts today? In Jesus' name, amen. Reading from Romans 12, 1 through 13, and this, what are we doing here? We are here to serve the Lord. We come together to serve the Lord. We are part of his body because he wanted us to serve him. And in that service, the unsaved will become saved. The young one in Christ will become mature in Christ in that service. And uh, when you're talking about serving, there's several passages you could go to. But I chose Romans 12 because it's where for me personally as a young man God showed me the importance of giving him my body something I thought I'd done when I got saved but realized 30 years later I hadn't really done that I just accepted the free gift without giving my body. So it's a spot that I can run to and uh, speak about because it's been true in my own life and it'll be true in yours. Therefore, reading from chapter 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, 
Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. And practicing hospitality. A couple things I'll just say and then we'll move along. Um, I'm just going to say a few things about the passage and try and get you out of here before 3 o'clock. Um, we'll start with sacrificial living. Verses 1 and 2 talk about sacrificial living. And there's a therefore in the passage, and so that would mean we need to look previous to that section. Um, and I think that, that therefore, it speaks about a few verses before, but I think it really speaks about all 11 chapters. Uh, therefore, I urge you, I plead with you, I, of utmost importance. The Apostle Paul could have commanded that you do this, but he doesn't make a command here. He does a pleading. He's appealing to you. He's saying in light of, he says, I urge you, brethren. So he's talking to believers. If you're here today and you've never met Jesus Christ, this isn't for you. This is for the believer in the room. This is for the one who's placed faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on a cross. And if you look at the 11 chapters before, it will definitely show you that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. But I notice in it that he says you're supposed to present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I notice the tone is different. He's not demanding it. He doesn't have to. He doesn't it just makes sense in light of God's mercies that you'd give him your body. That's what he's saying. He's just pointing out that because of what God has done for you, the most logical conclusion that you can come to is that you would give your body to him as a spiritual act of worship. So it's not a command, it's an appeal. Some would say it's a pastoral appeal. And I think that's what it is. I think Paul is not putting his finger in your chest this morning, and I'm trying my best not to do that with you either. But he's not doing that. He's got an arm around you this morning, and I would like to think that I'm doing the same thing. Because see, for those of you who have figured out that giving him your body and serving him is the best thing you can do, it's not only the logical thing to do, the most logical thing to do, it is the most wonderful thing to do. There's nothing that satisfies like giving him your body and serving. So I like that he's got an arm around the recipient. Whoever's hearing this, whoever God is talking to through his word this morning, know that he's got an arm around you. And he's trying to make logic of the facts of what he's done. The basis of the appeal is the mercies of God. The mercies of God. And they're incredible. I'm going to read a whole section here in a moment that I took out of uh, John MacArthur's commentary. Yes, I admit that I read John MacArthur when I'm going to prep a sermon. But he had so much there and I was typing that. I'm like, you know what? I think I'll just copy it and read it. I think I've seen my pastor 
and the one that's mentored me even to be up here, he's done similar things. I've had copies of copies that he's made, so I felt like I could take that liberty. Let's, let's talk about that. First of all, the mercies of God. Notice that it's a plural form. It's not the mercy. It's the mercies. There's multiple ones. They're new every morning, right? Haven't you experienced his mercy throughout your Christian life? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. And so we notice that it's plural. There's more than one, and that's why there's such a long section on it. Pardon me for being lazy that I didn't type them in myself. But he's, and then I think this is very interesting that Paul has a comprehensive knowledge of the mercies of God. He just wrote 11 chapters about it in this letter, but he also had a personal comprehensive knowledge of God's mercies. Remember that when we first see Saul of Tarsus, he was persecuting Christians. He was heartily approving. Oh, put your jacket right here next to me while you stone Stephen. Right? So not only does he have a knowledge as far as writing it, but he had a personal knowledge. Because when he met Christ, the one he was trying to eliminate, trying to wipe off the face of the earth, the name of Jesus. But then he met him on a road and got introduced to him by Christ. And then he became in Christ. And everything changed. How many of you got saved as adults and thought that Christianity was a, a crutch, a joke? Like, oh, how could you believe that? But then he met you on your Damascus road and you became in Christ and it all made sense to you then. Yeah, yeah. That's the guy that's writing the letter. He's the one that's got the arm around you right now talking to you. Not from a point of God downloaded this to me. No, I've lived it. I've, I've seen his mercies. And I would say I feel much the same. I've seen his mercies throughout my life. What is mercy? I forgot to explain that to you. Uh, most of you know what mercy is. If you watch Judge Judy, um, you probably understand the word mercy. But when God gives mercy, it's completely different than that. It's completely different than that. His mercy just says, what you deserve is hell because I found you as a sinner. I found you dead. But because of my mercy, which he happens to be rich in, he says, it's a never-ending supply. He says, because of my mercy. So mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. And then I love to marry it with grace because he says, but instead, I'll give you what you can never earn. Amen? What you don't deserve is freedom from sin, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. But I'm also going to free you up, and you're going to become a slave, not to sin anymore, but you're going to become a slave to the king of kings. We don't like the term slave, but that's too bad. It's in the Bible. I use it because it's used quite a bit in the passages. We've converted it to the word servant, but the actual Greek word is slave. And so, um, but I want to read a little bit about his mercies. Here we go. This is page 141 of John MacArthur's um, commentary on the New Testament. Perhaps the two most precious mercies of God are his love and his grace. 
In Christ, we are the beloved of God. And like the, and these are, let me tell you, all of these are in those first 11 chapters. Everything I'm going to read to you is in those first 11 chapters. We are the beloved of God. And like the apostle, we all have received grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. The mercies of God are reflected in his power of salvation and in his great kindness toward those he saves. His mercies in Christ bring us forgiveness and the propitiation of our sins, the satisfaction. God is satisfied with Jesus Christ to pay the price for your sins. You've been justified by that. And also, freedom from the sins. We have received a reconciliation with him. Justification before him. Confirmation to his son. Glorification in his very likeness. Eternal life in his very presence. And the resurrection of our bodies to serve him in his everlasting kingdom. We have received the mercies of divine sonship and of the Holy Spirit who personally indwells us, who intercedes for us, and through whom the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. In Christ, we also have received the mercies of faith, mentioned 30 times in Romans 1 through 11. The faith is mentioned 30 times. We've received the mercies of peace, of hope. God's mercies include his shared righteousness and even his shared glory and honor. And of course, the mercies of God include his sovereign mercy. All in chapters 1 through 11. Now, doesn't it make sense? Therefore, doesn't it make sense that you would say, I'm going to give you my body now? today as a living sacrifice to the king of kings who's provided ultimate mercy for us doesn't it make sense that you would say i'm going to give him my body i discovered this passage at about 35 what i quickly learned was that it's not a once for all i can't do it one time walk away and say well i did that because I'll mess it up. I got to do it every day. I got to wake up every morning and say to him by the side of my bed, I give you my body today, Lord. I give it to you afresh and new. Oh, that you would use me however it is that you decided and designed for me to be used. I give it to you. A living sacrifice. Holy before you. And then do not be conformed to this world. Oh, let me say. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? How many of you heard me preach the last three months? What do I point you to every week that I preach? This Not my words, these words. This is where you have to find the changing of your mind. If you want to change your mind, you got to put something fresh and new inside of it. And something fresh and new, what will God reveal to you today if you decide to read Romans 1? 
What will he show you that you didn't know before today? I promise you, if you pick the book up and read it, he'll show you something. Every time I read it, I see something new. And this is stuff I've read a hundred times, and I still find something new. Every time. And it's renewing your mind. You have to renew it. It's an action. The renewing of your mind is an action thing. It's verbal by its very context. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The appeal is to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, and perfect. How do you do that? Well, he says it over here in Romans 6. He says this to you. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Is sin reigning in your body? If it is, why is it? You're letting it happen. Sin doesn't creep up and jump on you and wrestle match you. Most sin is premeditated. I'm looking at this side. I'll look at this side. Most sin, I, I think all sin is premeditated, except what you were born into. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. This is Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. I'll read all of it. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. If you've got sin reigning in your body, you're going to obey the lusts that come. It's just what's going to happen. You've got to renew your mind to get rid of that stuff. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present, look, but instead, contrast, instead of doing that, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to Valley Bible Church, to Pastor Larry, to my wife. No, to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but you're under the grace. You're under grace. Oh, thank God I'm not under the law. I tried living like that for a while as a kid. It doesn't work. I love the grace that he provides. Spiritual worship is the most natural result of this passage. It should be the most natural of results that you would want to do spiritual worship, that you'd want to give him your body. That you, I mean, how could you examine those chapters and the mercy that he's provided for you and not want to? Because of the mercies presented in chapters, those first 11 chapters of Romans, you just want to give him your body. Now, what's proof that I'm giving him my body? What's the way to prove that? Well, we move on. For through the grace given to me, this is Apostle Paul is talking. Through the grace given to Paul, he says, the divine undeserved favor that allowed Paul the apostleship and gave him the authority to make this appeal to the believers in Rome. He's saying, by the grace given me, what is grace? It's unmerited favor. Whatever giftedness that God has given you, it's unmerited by you. He didn't say, I'm going to make 
um, Tim Valstrom be the executive pastor of Valley Bible Church because he's really, really good. And he's really, really spiritual. That's not what he did. He said, I'm going to give you unmerited favor and give you a gifting in that area. You didn't sign up for it. You didn't take a special test. It's just he's graciously given you a gift. And Paul acknowledges it from the beginning. He says, in my own life, by the grace given me of God, I'm here to appeal to you. And look, the appeal is not to just some. It's to the believers. We've already identified it's brethren, which means it's a believer. But who's it to? It's to everyone. And what's the warning in verse 3 here? He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Huh. None of you have that problem, do you? Thinking more highly of yourself than you should? I've never struggled with that. I love this. I, I ran into this paraphrase by J.B. Phillips in one of his books I was looking at. It says this. This is his paraphrase of this whole section. Do not cherish exaggerated ideas of your importance. If Jesus Christ himself counted it nothing to be in heaven with the Father to come and die on your behalf, isn't that something you should emulate? I don't think of myself more highly than I should. I'm just falling underneath the leadership of Jesus Christ and the giftiness that he's given us. We cannot... Well, let me say this. Selflessness is vitally important in the body of Christ. Selflessness is vitally important. We cannot be ourselves according to God's plan by ourselves. Let me say that again. You cannot be what he intended you to be on your own. You need the body. You gotta have the body. Now, what do you do instead of thinking highly of yourself? Instead of thinking of yourself as important, use sound or sober judgment. This will cause you to realize that you are not that important and will bring true humility to you. Paul had to have true humility brought to him. He was very learned. He was probably more intelligent than any of the other apostles as far as training is concerned. But he came humbly before the Lord and he let the Lord raise him up in due time. One of my favorite passages. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will raise you up in His time. He will exalt you. Listen, I do not need to be exalted by men. You don't need to be exalted by men. You need to be exalted by God. So instead of thinking of yourself as important, have sober judgment. Think it through. Because huh. you notice he says that. He says, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Measure of faith, what does that mean? He's given the exact correct proportion. It's like a mathematical equation. In your life, you need 33% of supernatural ability by me. I'm giving that much to you because the job I have for you to do requires that much. 
But in your life, that's 100% of the faith that you need. That's what it really is. The measure of faith, the correct proportion of supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit, which allows each believer to fulfill the role that they are given to fulfill. Nothing more, nothing less. You've got a job to do in the church. You've got a job to do in the body. Can you please do your job? Note that this faith is not the saving faith. It's a different kind of faith. It is not saving faith, but the faith necessary to use one's particular gift. Everyone who is a believer gets that exact gift, the one that God intended them to get, and they also get the resources needed to achieve all that God intended them to achieve in the body of Christ. That's the whole point. He gives them a measure of faith that they might be able to do the very thing that he said he wants you to do. If you don't have a measure of faith, you'll do nothing. If you don't believe you can do it, you're not going to even attempt it. Right? Most people are smart enough to go, I can't do that. I'm not even going to try to do that. But what if you know you have the ability to do it? That changes everything. So he says he gave you a measure of faith. To be able to believe that this is the gift that God gave me, I'm going to flourish in that. On we go. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. Imagine if we were all a little toe. Probably wouldn't work out very well. Imagine the pair of shoes we'd have to wear. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individual members one another, one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Many members, one body. You see that in the passage. There's lots of us, but we make up one body. We're all different. There's not a person in the room that's the same as me. And you're all saying, thank God. My wife was in the earlier service, and I told him that there was only one person in the whole building that I wanted, that I would be happy with everybody being like that person, and that was my wife. That would be the only way that would work for me. Now, if we reverse that, she'd say, no, please don't let everybody be like Larry. All right? But we're all different. We have different gifts. But guess what? When you put it all together, you make a body. I was looking, there's like 14 different, no, 15, I don't know, I'm not much of a biologist here, biology person. I think there's 15 different um, parts of the body, systems in the body. You know, all these different systems that make the body function and work and all that. And I'm like, man, man, did God know what he was doing. He made us a body. We're one body. You can't get closer than being in a body with somebody. Right? It's what I say about the Holy Spirit. There's no one in this world that can be closer to me than God. Because why? Because he's in me. You can't get any closer than that. Guess what? I can't get closer to people in the world that don't know Christ because they're not in the same body with me. You I can get close to. You're in the body with me. If you're not in the body, it's our desire that you would be in it before you leave today. Oh, that you would meet my Savior. Oh, that you would come to know him in his fullness. That you would know that he sent his son to die for you. If you read Romans 3.23, you'd see there's nothing you can do to please him. 
You sin and you fall short of the glory of God. You can't get there on your own. He had to do all the work. He took the complexity of it on himself, and all you need to do is exercise simple faith, and he will give you the faith if you want to believe. That's how you get to be what we call saved around here, or a Christian, or a believer. You put your full faith in that and that alone. Not that and all, oh, I got to live perfect. No, you don't. You won't live perfect. You can't live perfect. But one day I'm going to get a body where I won't be able to sin anymore. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're stuck with me in this body with us. We're all in the same body. We're all going for the same thing. We have a ministry that God intended us to do. Many members, one body, just like our natural body. It's very interesting that God used our own body to describe being in the body. You know why I think he did that? Instead of some other metaphor or some other example, is because you carry your body with you. It makes sense to all of us. You don't have to try and think about that. What is he talking about? I'm not understand the complexity of a motorcycle. No, it's my body. I understand it. I got toes. I got feet. I got all that stuff. It all works. Guess what? You know what we think sometimes? We think, well, let's see now. My eyes are much more important than my little toe. That's not true. You might think that's true till you lose a little toe. Or until you jam that thing on the coffee table as you're walking by and you do a little prayer to the Lord so you don't cuss. But that toe lets you know that it's part of you. And guess what else? If you lose it, you lose your balance. You got to have those toes. Everybody in the body is not the same, but they're equally gifted. Equally gifted, but different. The same God that gives a speaker to come up and speak like this is the same God that I would say, I'm just going to use the man's name. I, I knew him. He was incredible in my mind. Bob Kennedy. Bob Kennedy. I was going over to Cornerstone Seminary, taking some classes years ago, and I went there, and here's Bob Kennedy. He doesn't belong to that church. He doesn't belong at that seminary. He's over there emptying garbage cans and doing the, you know what? He's just as vital as me up here preaching. He has the same God that gave him the same grace to give him a gift that he didn't earn. The giftedness that you have is something God gave you. Many are in the body. Many are one body in Christ individually. We are members of one another. We all have gifts that differ according to the grace given. We should be using them. Right? Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. This is not the same exercise that you bought the exercise machine for at your house that sits in the corner with your clothes draped all over it. That thing will not get you in shape unless you get on it. And you will not be doing what God intended you to do until you exercise the gift that he gave you. You have to get active in it. To exercise means I'm going to do something most of us get most of our exercise going to the refrigerator. 
it's time to do some exercising of your gift if you haven't been using it. This, but this local assembly of Valley Bible Church is hurting because we don't have people serving. Yeah, our body is in pain because we got more people doing more than they should. You know what happens when you take me outside of the gift that God gave me? I'm misplaced. I'm misappropriated. I'm, let's say I'll just give myself, I'm a nose, and I'm trying to do the work of the little toe. How does that work? I'm not gifted in that area. And listen, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. You know what they gave me in leadership? They gave me a book on leadership. They gave me secular books on leadership. You know what they said? Find out. We're going to give you a test. We're going to find out what your, what your strength, they call it strength. We call it giftedness here. We're going to find out what your strength is. You know what they told me? There's no such thing as a well-rounded leader. You can't be everything in leadership. You've got a strength. You need to concentrate on your strength. Quit trying to do the thing you're not, you're not strong in. Quit wasting all your time trying to be something you're not. Take the strength you're at and build that. Work in that area. Let that be the strong area. And then I say this. Stop worrying about the gift you don't have. And start using the one you do have. That's the challenge for you. And we go on. We're going to identify. We're going to take a look at some of the gifts that he does mention. And I think they're important. They're different. It's very interesting. It's a different list than what he did in 1 Corinthians. It's a different list. Which means that there's probably more gifts than we realize. But these are definitely the ones that are identified. He says, if prophecy... Uh, then in according to the proportion of the faith that you've been given in prophecy. If it's prophecy, now, I want to say something. I don't think, well, the word in Greek is prophetia, and, and, and it, the literal meaning of that is speaking forth, and it has no connotation of predicting things. It has no connotation of supernatural or mystical significance to it. Okay, it's the same word used in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, where he says this, one who prophesies speaks to men because he's given a fresh word that, that God gave him that nobody else knows. It's not what it says. It says, speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Guess what I'm doing today? I'm using the word of God to talk to you and to tell you what it says. I'm trying to exhort you. I'm trying to edify you. I'm trying to show you what God says you should be doing with your body. First of all, you should be giving your body to him, and then what should you do with it at that point? That's what we're talking about. So, or as in Peter's admonition, which he also applies to this gift, whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. So in, in modern day, we're not the prophets like an Old Testament. There's some people that believe that a, a pastor, when he preaches, is actually being... He's actually prophesying. Well, you can believe that if you want to. I don't really know where I stand on that completely. I believe that if um, I'm up here and I'm expanding the word the way I'm supposed to and preaching it to you, and if you've never heard that before, it's a form of prophecy, I would say. You're, you're hearing something brand new from the Lord. And I think that's what the passage is saying. It's not talking about we're finding another whole book of the Bible or you know, God's telling me something specific about you should sell your house and give me the money. That's not what we're saying. Okay, that's not what he means here. And then he goes on. 
in service, if it's service that you're doing, then in his service, then do it according. If it's teaching, then you should be teaching. Huh. And, and then I put a couple notes here about teaching. Address the understanding of the students. You're going to give them something new to think about, something new to learn. And then the whole point of teaching when it comes to biblical stuff is so that it, you're teaching for a, a changed life, a life change. You're getting more information so that you can not just be smarter, but so you can live more appropriately. And that's what teachers do. They teach you in a way that you learn enough that you can walk away going, I think I need to make a change. And then what's the reward for a teacher is when they see the change. Right? And I would just like to say I would like to compliment all of our people that are teaching our children across the way that have been involved in doing that. Thank you so much for serving the Lord in that capacity. Yeah. Thank you to my fellow pastors and elders and the different ones that teach or preach the word of God. Thank you. I'm thankful that it doesn't all fall on my shoulders. And it's not supposed to. You didn't see it say that I'm the only one, the only pastors are supposed to do this. No, it doesn't say that. If you're gifted in teaching, teach. If you're gifted in exhorting, then do some exhortation. And I think that's what we do when we preach. I think we exhort in preaching. We teach, you learn things, but we also exhort you to move on. Go for it. You can do this. This is what God's saying you can do. And how do I know you can do it? Because he's already empowered you to do it. He's already given you everything you need to be able to perform it. All right? So exhorting is to press home the implications of the instruction. I'm going to press it in. Here's what you need to do. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to tell you what you need to do if you're not serving. I'm going to show you how you can stop that today. You can stop sitting on the bench on the sideline. You can get in the game. And it's the one God intended you to do. Not me. Not me. It, look in here. It's him talking, not me. All right. He who gives, and Lord, we like these, with liberality, be generous. Be generous in your giving if that's your gift, and your generosity will be blessed. God will bless your generosity. I've never met a man yet who had this gift that God did not bless his life so he could continue to give. I've seen it time and time again. Men that are willing to let go of funds to further the kingdom of God, God keeps putting more funds in their hands. That is not prosperity preaching, by the way. I've just seen it. I would never preach that if you give, God will give you more necessarily, although that's true. But I wouldn't say it in that way. You have to have the right attitude toward God in the whole thing. He who leads, let him do it with diligence, not being a slacker. And what does that mean to lead? I think it's serving, giving direction, uh, not for reward, but for unity and harmony. And he's not a slacker. He's not a guy that, oh, I'll get to it when I get to it. No, he's out there on the front line making sure it happens. That's leadership. And he who shows mercy, let him do it with cheerfulness. Um, I don't want to embarrass her, but my aunt, I think my Aunt Carolyn, Pastor Phil's wife, Carolyn, is probably one of the people, when I see the term of having a gift of mercy, I always think of my Aunt Carolyn. And, um, yeah. And it's interesting because I think she does it with cheerfulness. She can, she can be 
worn out, exhausted, tired, and hear about somebody hurting, and she goes to serve them. I've seen her do it. She's drugged me along with her sometimes in doing that. And um, oh, the reward. Let me ask you something. You ever been sick and have, be in the hospital and have a nurse that doesn't care about you? It's the worst thing in the world. But oh, if you've got a nurse that cares about you and is cheerful about it and, and enjoys her job, she's not just there drawing a check. Or he, I know there's men nurses too. I had some of the greatest nurses. I spent eight days in the hospital uh, a few years back and I had some of the greatest nurses in the world. I mean, I'm, you know, they told me I was a good patient. I don't believe that's probably true, but they were great nurses. And so I always think of caregiving when I think of that. And to do it with great joy and not grudgingly is important. Uh, John Calvin said this. He said, nothing gives more solace to the sick or to anyone otherwise distressed than to see a man or a woman cheerful and prompt in assisting them. And the opposite of that is, so to observe sadness in the countenance of those by whom assistance is given makes them to feel themselves despised. You've got to have mercy. If you're going to have that gift of mercy, you're going to be able to do it cheerfully. Because otherwise, you'll make the people that you're having to serve feel despised. And that's what happens sometimes when people don't have time for you when you're hurting. You feel like, well, man, I didn't mean to get in your way. Right? And here's a warning for all of us in all of these gifted areas, all of these things. Remember this. The desire for preeminence in ministry is the death knell of spiritual usefulness. If you just want to find a ministry where you can be the superstar, I want to look good. I'm going to wear my suit with my worship t-shirt under it um, because I'm going to address that in a second. I want to say something, though, about this importance of not considering yourself higher than anyone else or your giftedness is more important than the other person's giftedness. And, and I'm going to use my, uh, my uncle and my pastor, my, our pastor, our pastor emeritus, Phil Howard, in this. He's taught us for years around here. If you've been here more than five years, you probably were influenced by the man's ministry. And he did that ministry right here from the pulpit. Tons of it. He also did a lot of it when Carolyn would drag him off to these mercy uh, meetings also. But he's also been a pastor to you guys. But I can remember him saying multiple times, all, probably all the way back to Holy Ghost Hall, that this is the gift that God's given me. But if ever I get to a point where I can't do this gift anymore, if I, if I can't fill the pulpit, maybe my mind just doesn't allow me to do it, and heaven forbid that happen. But he, he said this, and I, I thought of it, man, this fits so well. If ever I get where I can't do that, I'm no longer able to stand in a pulpit. Would you let me sweep the floors? Because his mercies are incredible. I don't want to be found not doing something when he comes back. I want him to have my full body. I was saddened. I loved it, but I was also saddened that last week he played the guitar up here for us. And, you know, he says he can't play, but I, can't, I'm, I really can't play. He can play. 
And I thought of, he's back here kind of in the background, and I'm like, Phil, you're actually getting what you said now. We're starting to see a little bit of it. And he's back there. But let me tell you, 20 years before, he'd have been up here on a mic, and we might have sang 30 songs as they hit him. There's different times in your life for service. And you're never retired in serving. You're never retired. You may retire from one aspect, but you're not retired. God's going to keep using you. I'm going to tell you something. God has an indelible way, a very positive way of letting you know when you're really retired. And that's when you expire. That's the only way you get out of it. Either you physically can no longer do anything, or you leave this life. And guess what? That's part of his sovereign plan too. That's part of his sovereign mercy. Amen? The last part, I'm not even going to... Look, I don't have time. Let me say this in conclusion. What I'm going to do is I really want you... I don't want you to not be able to serve. Okay? And sometimes... In the past, we've, we've said, hey, there's areas that you can serve in, but we haven't identified them for you. We've identified them for you. When you walk out these doors today, if you go to your left, you'll see it says enlistment ministry there, and there's shelves there with probably 35 or 40 different ministry opportunities for you. You pick one of those up. There's got a contact on there for you and all of that, so you can become involved in Valley Bible Church as more than just a recipient receiving all the time. You can give back. That's what God's intention is. But I want to read a story real quick. This comes from, and that's what I want you to do. And I'm going to read this to you, and I think it's going to be a, a, an object lesson for you. Boys in the boat. Nine Americans in their epic quest for the gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. It's a book somebody turned me on to. I started reading it. I know nothing about rowing. Competitive rowing, I know nothing about it until I started reading this book. I mean, I know there's a guy there that gives cadences, and I know there's people there with their backs into it, and they have to be all in rhythm and all that. But listen, he says, uh, this book is about rowing, which I didn't know much, because I already said that. The writer is talking about the difficulties that are involved in the process of rowing, how you have to go at it as fast as you possibly can and exert as much energy as possible, and you have to train to do it as smoothly as possible. If you're not careful, you're thrashing around in the water, and your boat goes crooked, and it's all a mess. So there are multiple insights into how to achieve success in rowing, but the greatest paradox of the sport is the psychological makeup of the people who pull the oars. Great oarsmen and oarswomen are necessarily made of conflicting stuff, oil, water, fire, earth, on the one hand, and they must possess enormous self-confidence, strong egos, and titanic willpower. They must be almost immune to frustration. Nobody who does not believe deeply in himself or herself in his or her ability to endure hardship to the prevail over adversity is lightly even to attempt something as audacious as competitive rowing at the highest levels. You just don't even try it. The sport offers so many opportunities for suffering and so few opportunities for glory that only the most self-reliant and self-motivated are likely to succeed at it. And yet, at the same time, and this is the key, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self that way, the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength. They may have outstanding coxswain, the guy that 
gives them the cadence, that guy, that little guy in the boat that's telling all the big guys what to do. Or the, or the stroke oar guy, or the bowman. But they have no stars. They, the team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, the single whole unified and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters. Not the individual, nor the self. There is no I in the team of sport rowing. There is no I in that boat. And I'm here to tell you, there's only one I in the church. And that is the great I am. He said, I am the great shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. He that knocks... I will answer. Oh, please get in the boat with us and row for the great I am. You're rowing for the great I am. Not for me, not for Valley Bible Church. It's his work that you're going to be doing. He gifted every one of you. Stop sitting on your gift. Put it to work. Put it to work. We give you the opportunity this morning as you exit to go over to that board, find something there. If you're not sure, try it. You'll never be sure if you don't ever try. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you for what this passage has done in my life. May you now bless us as we exit here. Lord, I would love to see that board out there have no cards on it when we're, when we're done. But I have no power to do that. That has to be you. May your word be the thing that convinces people that because of your great mercy, you deserve to have their bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.